fools will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. Okay, welcome everybody. Pastor Eli James here. Uh, this is the Restoration Hour here on Eurofolk Radio. Today is June 18th. And the topic for today's show is Belshazzar's Feast and the Fall of Babylon, which is uh, quite an extensive article on the historicity of Belshazzar, because as we've been doing and do uh, very often, whenever we can, we do programs showing the historicity of Scripture, uh, revealing archaeology that proves that the Bible is true, and today is such a show and regarding uh, the existence of Belshazzar, which has been, as usual, denied by many secular scholars for decades, if not centuries. But we're going to find out that Belshazzar actually did exist, have an extensive history of the kingdom of Babylon before it fell to the Medes and Persians. And also, uh, a quick announcement. Uh, The next two weekends, I will be out of town, so there won't be any live shows scheduled for the weekend of the 25th and 26th. And then the weekend of the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd is going to be 4th of July. I'll be in, in Philadelphia for the Freedom Palooza event. And so you can just go to freedompalooza.com. I'm pretty sure that's the correct address, freedompalooza.com, and uh, register there, and uh, you'll get the map and uh, the program and everything uh, there. So I'll definitely be speaking there, and I'm going to be talking about what is a woman. <laughs> what, 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 is a, uh, what is an Israelite? What is a human being? You know, I'll give you the biblical definitions of those things. And not that they're easy to, or difficult to define in any case, but it always helps to have a biblical definition of things. So uh, just uh, uh, next week and the week after, there won't be any live shows unless, unless I can uh, break in to the schedule and do something live either from Texas, where I'm, I'm going to be next weekend, or uh, Philadelphia the following weekend. Okay, so there's always a chance I can break in. However, I'm traveling very, very long distances and finding free time to do a broadcast when I'm driving uh, basically a 13-hour to and fro from Texas and then a 16-hour each way 
to to and from Philadelphia, so it's going to be a lot of driving time for me. Hopefully, the gas price doesn't go up to 30 bucks a gallon, and I should be okay. All right. So anyway, welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here. And we're going to go into this article right now. And this is Bible.org, series, page 5, Belshazzar's Feast and the Fall of Babylon. And this article was written or contributed by John of Valvourd, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. That sounds like a South African name. Uh, longtime president of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he was one of the most prominent evangelical scholars of his generation. He is considered perhaps the world's foremost interpreter of biblical prophecy. John is perhaps best known for his best-selling work on Bible prophecy, etc. Okay, so, uh, well, of course, the Dallas Theological Seminary is uh, totally Judeo. And uh, also, uh, as far as I can tell, although may not be, uh, antinomian, and of course assumes that the Jews are God's chosen people, Israel. So there's a lot of problems I would have with any prophecy interpretation coming from Mr. Walvurd. But in any case, let's get into it here. Almost 70 years have passed since the events of chapter 1 of Daniel. Okay, that's uh, he's he's setting a historical context. <laughs> he's he's not talking about today, right? Okay, because well, uh, it would be like uh, three thousand years if he were talking about today. Nebuchadnezzar himself had died in five sixty two B.C. Daniel does not record his immediate successors, and extra biblical literature is somewhat confused. A plausible account of Barosus in his third book, found in a fragment preserved by Josephus, summarizes the history between Nebuchadnezzar's death in 562 B.C. and the fall of Babylon in 539 B.C. Okay, so and that's the date I've been working with in my prophetic analyses, the fall of Babylon in 539 B.C., from which we can calculate the 490 years to the coming of Christ in Palestine, uh, the wonderful prophecy in the book of Daniel about the coming of Christ and the destruction of the temple. But that's a different chapter. This is a more historical account and not a book of prophecy. According to Morosus, Nebuchadnezzar died after a reign of 43 years and was followed by his son, Evil Merodach. Because his rule was arbitrary and licentious, he was assassinated by Neriglisar, N-E-R-I-G-L-I-S-A-R, Neriglisar, after he had reigned only two years. The next four years, Neriglisar occupied the throne. At his death, his son, Labaro Soarkad, Labaro Soarkad, who was only a child, reigned for nine months until a conspiracy resulted in his being beaten to death. The conspirators appointed Nabonidus, one of their number, who reigned for 17 years before being defeated by Cyrus the Persian. Nabonidus, fleeing Babylon, went to Borsippa, but was forced to surrender to Cyrus. Nabonidus was allowed to live in Carmania until the time of his death, 
but he was not, not allowed to come back to Babylonia. The account of Barosus, preserved by Josephus, is supported by other evidence, such as the short fragment of Abinus, preserved by Eusebius. Abinus is A-B-Y-D-E-N-U-S, Abinus, preserved by Eusebius. Until the discovery of the Nabonidus cylinder, no mention of Belshazzar, whom Daniel declares to be king of Babylon, had been found in extra-biblical literature. Critics of the authenticity and historicity of Daniel accordingly were free to question whether any such person as Belshazzar existed. Since the publication of Raymond Daugherty's scholarly research on Nabonidus and Belshazzar, based on the Nabonidus cylinder and other sources, there is no ground for questioning the general historicity of Belshazzar, and only the details of the scriptural account, unverified by extra-biblical sources, can be challenged by the critics. Okay? So, Raymond Daugherty had discovered the Nabonidus cylinder and other sources. It doesn't quote it just yet, but we continue. Montgomery states that the story is unhistorical, but nevertheless contains indubitable reminiscences of actual history. Yes, most history books have indubitable reminiscence of actual history. Next paragraph. On the other hand, such a careful scholar as Edward J. Young states, quote, The identity of Belshazzar has long caused difficulty to commentators. Some have denied his historicity. The king's name, however, has now appeared upon the cuneiform documents so that there can be no question as to his historicity. This is the first point at which this uh, channel, CH, whatever the CH stands for, or chapter, exhibits its remarkable accuracy. The controversy over Belshazzar because of the extensive investigation and great variety of findings has become one of the most complicated problems in the entire book. But the problem is itself comparatively simple. Was Belshazzar actually king of Babylon? And was he murdered on the night that Babylon was conquered? Good question, because that's what the Bible documents. And so this uh, CH probably refers to this chapter 5, because this is chapter 5 of this uh, larger document. So let's continue. A solution of the problem has depended largely on the premises of scholars dealing with it. Those critical of the authenticity and accuracy of Daniel, especially those zealous to prove 2nd century authorship, proceed on the premise that Daniel must be in error until he is proved otherwise. Here, he's innocent until proven guilty, folks. Here, the discussion is lost in a maze of conflicting facts in extra-biblical literature concerning which the critics themselves are not agreed. Although such an ancient such ancient records are notoriously inaccurate and at best are fragmentary, the argument of the critics was that Belshazzar never existed because his name did not appear in any of the ancient records. Uh, lack of evidence does not prove evidence of lack. I think that's how it goes. <laughs> Just because you haven't found it yet doesn't mean it doesn't exist. 
Let's continue. This omission, however, was later remedied, as mentioned above, by the discovery of the name of Belshazzar, Belshar Usur, Belshazzar, on cylinders in which he is called the son of Nabonidus. That's getting pretty close, I would think. Critics having to recede from their former position that no such person existed have since centered their attack on the fact that the word king does not occur in connection with Belshazzar on any extant Babylonian records. Well, that would be interesting because I think Belshazzar was uh, not... Uh, the highest-ranking person in Babylon. I think he was subbing for somebody. We'll find out here. The establishment of Nabonidus as the father of Belshazzar, or at least his, his stepfather, nullifies most of the critical objections, although Rowley, in an extensive discussion, maintained stoutly that to call Belshazzar a king, quote, must still be pronounced a, gra- a grave historical error, unquote. Since Rowley, however, even liberal scholars have tended to accept the explanation that Belshazzar acted as a regent under his father, Nabonidus. Norman Porteus, for instance, writes, quote, On the other hand, it is known that Belshazzar was a historical person, the son of the last Babylonian king, Nabonidus, who acted as regent of Babylon for several years before its fall, while his father was absent at the oasis of Tima, in Arabia, that's T-E-I-M-A, Tima, in Arabia. This would begin Belshazzar's regency about 553 B.C., when Nabonidus went to Tima. Not only the record in Daniel, but also the external evidence is now sufficient to support the conclusion that Belshazzar's co-regency is almost beyond question. This is another illustration of how critical objections based on lack of external evidence are frequently overthrown when the evidence is uncovered. Yes, and as we here at Eurofolk Radio have said on numerous occasions, that archaeology has always proven the Bible to be correct, especially in the modern era when we have astro-archaeology, we have computerized archaeology, and we have, of course, in the modern world, great uh, distances being traveled and new uh, new uh, sites being dug up constantly. Uh, there, There's a wealth of biblical information proving that the Bible is true. Additional evidence that Nabonidus was away from Babylon on the night of Daniel 5 is given in the fragment from Barosus, previously cited, which indicates that Nabonidus had left Babylon only to be vanquished in battle and flee to Borsippa. This would involve the premise that Nabonidus, although usually living at Tima, had returned to Babylon for a visit just prior to the siege of Babylon, had gone out to battle before Babylon was actually surrounded, and then was defeated, thereby permitting the Persians to besiege Babylon itself. Under these circumstances, Belshazzar would indeed be king of Babylon in the absence of his father. Problems of his relationship will be considered at the proper place in the exposition, including the possibility that Belshazzar's mother was a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and thus in the royal line, whereas Nabonidus was not. There are actually so many plausible possibilities in Daniel's account, supported by the evidence cited, that the storm of objections can hardly be taken seriously. 
Hooray, hooray. Belshazzar's feast in honor of the gods of Babylon. And this would be Daniel 5, 1 through 4. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of the God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, of silver, of brass, and iron, of wood, and stone. Very interesting, because those those vessels that were taken out of Jerusalem were not items of worship. They were simply you know, valuable items uh, that uh, the Israelites were, were saving. And of course, uh, after Solomon, the kingdom had tremendous wealth, and uh, really uh, that wealth continued as the kingdom went on until, of course, the invasion by Nebuchadnezzar. Let's continue. About 70 years had elapsed since the capture of Jerusalem recorded in Daniel 1. In the interpretation of the image in chapter 2, Daniel had predicted to Nebuchadnezzar, quote, After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, unquote, Daniel 2.39. Now, in chapter 5, this prophecy is about to be fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar's humiliating experience in chapter 4 had been followed by his death in 562 B.C. Approximately 23 years elapsed between chapter 4 and chapter 5. In this period, a number of monarchs had succeeded Nebuchadnezzar. According to Barosus, Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by his son, Evil Merodach, also known as Amal Merodach, or Marduk, Amal Marduk who was killed in 560 B.C. He was followed by Nergalshar, also spelled Nergal-Shar-Usur, a son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar, who died in 556 B.C. of natural causes. He was succeeded by Labaroso-Arkad, also known as Labashi-Marduk, a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who was assassinated after less than a year. Nabonidus assumed the throne in 556 B.C. and reigned until 539 B.C. when conquered by the Medes. Belshazzar is best identified as his son, whose mother was either a wife or a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, and thereby strengthened the claim of Nabonidus to the throne. This explains why Belshazzar, in the lineal descent from Nebuchadnezzar, was honored as a co-ruler under Nabonidus. Although there are alternative explanations and some dates vary, this succession of kings and identification of characters seems to have reasonable justification. Most expositors disagree with Kiel, or Kyle, K-E-I-L, who identifies Belshazzar with evil Merodach, preferring the identification of the son of Nabonidus based on later evidence not available to Kyle. The identifications of loophold are more satisfactory. In the quarter of a century which elapsed between chapter 4 and chapter 5, hold on, i got to get rid of this uh, ad. It's very distracting. Sorry. Okay. Can't get rid of it. <laughs> All right. 
It's at the bottom of the page, so I'll just have to try to ignore it and keep my text toward the top, okay? So, where was I? Okay, first year, blah, 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 and okay, let's continue here. In the quarter of a century which elapsed between chapter 4 and chapter 5, the further revelations given to Daniel in chapter 7 and 8 occurred. Chapter 7 was revealed to Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, 7-1. And the vision of the ram and the he-goat in chapter 8 occurred, quote, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, Daniel 8-1. The information embodied in these two visions, insofar as Daniel understood it, therefore was known to Daniel before the event of chapter 5, which chronologically came after chapters 7 and 8. If Belshazzar began his reign in 553 B.C., when Abonidus went to Tema, the visions of chapter 7 and 8 actually occurred about 12 years before the events of chapter 5. Okay, very good. Verse 1 of chapter 5 introduces the fact that Belshazzar, as king of Babylon, had made a great feast to which a thousand of his lords had been invited with their wives. That such a large feast should be held by a monarch like Belshazzar is not at all strange. Leupold decides the ancient historian Ctesias to the effect that Persian monarchs frequently were known to dine daily with 15,000 people. Oh, man, let's party. M.E. 50, whatever that means, Malawan, I think that number is... Uh, shouldn't be there. M.E. Malawan, I think he's referring to an, an author, mentions the great feast that Ashus Nazirpal II gave to 69,574 guests when he dedicated his new capital city of Kala, Nimrod, in 879 B.C. Of course, that was uh, uh, well before these events. Although the size of the banquet is not amazing, the situation was most unusual. If the setting can be reconstructed, Nabonidus previously had gone forth from Babylon to fight the Medes and the Persians and had already been captured. The whole surrounding territory of the city of Babylon and the related provinces already had been conquered. Only Babylon with its massive walls and fortifications remained intact, which is very similar to the situation at Jerusalem because all of the surrounding territory of Jerusalem was captured before the Assyrians, but Jerusalem was never captured by the Assyrians. But let's, let's continue here. Possibly to reassert their faith in their Babylonian gods and to bolster their own courage, this feast in the form of a festival had been ordered. The storehouses of Babylon were still abundant with food and wine, even though they were surrounded, and there is evidence that there was plenty of both at this feast. The expression, drunk wine before the thousand, indicates that Belshazzar was probably on a platform at a higher level than other guests and led them in drinking toasts to their deities. Under the stimulus of wine, the thought occurred to Belshazzar to bring in the gold and silver vessels taken from the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar almost 70 years before. The implication in the clause, quote, whilst he tasted the wine, unquote, is that Belshazzar in his right mind probably would not have committed this sacrilegious act. Well, I mean, to whom is it sacrilegious? It certainly isn't sacrilegious to Belshazzar, right? So anyway, this, but this, uh, 
recalling the plundering of the gold from Jerusalem was probably part of the reason why Belshazzar's fate was sealed using that uh, gold from Jerusalem, which was always holy for an unholy festival. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's continue. Drinking bouts such as characterized Babylon were also common among other peoples, such as the Persians. Athenaeus quotes Heraclides of Cume, the author of Persian history, in describing in detail the custom of drinking to excess after dinner. <laughs> oh, they actually waited till after dinner. The luxury of both the drinking and the eating is also illustrated in Athenaeus in describing dinners among the Persians of high station as follows, quote, For 1,000 animals are slaughtered daily for the king. These comprise horses, camels, oxen, asses, deer, and most of the smaller animals. Many birds are also consumed, including Arabian ostriches. Ostriches. Really? I didn't know there were ostriches in Arabia. I thought they were native only to Australia. Very interesting. And the creature is large. That Yeah, the ostriches are large. <laughs> Geese and cocks as well. Much has been made of the reference of Belshazzar's relationship to Nebuchadnezzar, who is described as his father in verse 2, and even Kyle is influenced by this to consider Belshazzar a literal son of Nebuchadnezzar. This is not entirely impossible, of course, for as Leopold shows, Nabonidus could have married a widow of Nebuchadnezzar who had a son by Nebuchadnezzar, who then could be adopted by Nabonidus by way of strengthening his own hold upon the throne. As Nabonidus assumed the throne in 556 B.C., only six years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar was probably at least a teenager when Nebuchadnezzar died, if he was old enough to be co-regent with Nabonidus in 553 B.C., it is possible that he was a genuine son of Nebuchadnezzar and that his mother, after Nebuchadnezzar's death, was married to Nabonidus. This, however, is conjecture, and probably it is more natural to consider Belshazzar a son of Nabonidus himself. Although the precise identity of Belshazzar may continue to be debated, available facts support accepting Daniel's designation of Belshazzar as king. The reference to father may be construed as grandfather. As Pusey states, neither in Hebrew nor in Calda is there any word for grandfather, grandson. Forefathers are called fathers and father's fathers, but a single grandfather or forefather is never called father's father, but always by father only. The sacred vessels taken from Jerusalem had apparently been kept in storage without sacrilegious use from Nebuchadnezzar's day until the occasion of this feast. Now these holy vessels are dist distributed among the crowd and used as vessels from which to drink wine. Verse 2 cites that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And this fact is restated in the actual act in verse 3 where only the golden vessels are mentioned. The Revised Standard Version, following the Vulgate, adds in verse 3, and silver vessels. This act of sacrilege was an intentioned 
religious gesture in praise of the gods of Babylon mentioned in descending order of importance as gods of gold and silver, brass, iron, wood, and stone. That Belshazzar well knew the blasphemous character of his act is evident from Daniel 5.13 and 22. He knew Daniel and knew the history of Nebuchadnezzar's experience with God's chastening. Some have found in the six materials mentioned a typical reference to the number of the world amenable to judgment because of its hostility to God. What is that, 666? (laughs) In the original, the gods of gold and silver are separated by the conjunction and, not true of the listing of the gods of brass, iron, wood, and stone, as if there were two classes of deities. The distinction is supported by Kyle. Their pride in their deities may have been bolstered by the magnificence of the city of Babylon itself, interpreted as an evidence of the power of their gods. Herodotus gives a glowing account of Babylon as a monument to the genius of Nebuchadnezzar and undoubtedly a source of much pride to all the Babylonians. According to Herodotus, Babylon was about 14 miles square with great outer walls 87 feet thick and 350 feet high with a 100 great bronze gates in the walls. A system of inner and outer walls with a water moat between the walls made the city very secure. So broad and strong were the walls that chariots four abreast could parade around its top. Herodotus pictures hundreds of towers to appropriate intervals reaching another 100 feet into the air above the top of the wall. Okay, very interesting. That's a big city, folks. (laughs) Certainly for its time. Okay, modern interpreters view Herodotus' figures as greatly exaggerated. Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. With the real dimensions only about one-fourth of what Herodotus claimed, the outer wall seems to have been only 17 miles in circumference instead of about 56, as Herodotus claimed, with much fewer towers and gates, and probably even the towers were not more than 100 feet tall. While the dimensions may be questioned, the magnificent sense of the city was not seriously exaggerated. You might be counting the moat, the moat as well, that would uh, increase the size of it, okay? 14 miles square. Now, uh, there's a difference between a 14 miles square, which would be 14 miles on every side, versus 14 square miles which would be a lot smaller. So maybe Herodotus is being misunderstood here. Modern interpreters view Herodotus' figures as greatly exaggerated, etc. The great Euphrates River flowed through the middle of the city in a general north-south direction and was bordered by walls on each side to protect the city from attack from the river. Within these walls were beautiful avenues, parks, and palaces. Many of the streets were linted with lined, rather, (laughs) with buildings three and four stories high. Among these buildings were the Temple of Bel, an eight-story structure, and the magnificent Palace of the King, actually a complex of buildings, which have now been excavated. A great bridge spanned the Euphrates River, connecting the eastern section and the western or new section of the city. The bridge was later supplemented by a tunnel mentioned by Diodorus, the famed Hanging gardens of Babylon were large enough to support trees.
Although Babylon has been only partially excavated, but with a small part of the original city recovered, the system of mounds which mark the city today more or less indicate its boundaries. Archaeological research is complicated by a change in the course of the Euphrates River and a high, higher water level, but more than 10,000 inscribed texts have been discovered. So that's a lot, a whole lot, 10,000 inscribed texts. In many respects, Babylon was the most fabulous city of the ancient world, both for the beauty of its architecture and for the safety of its huge walls and fortifications. It was hard for the Babylonians to believe that even the Medes and the Persians, who had surrounded their beloved city, could possibly breach the fortifications or exhaust their supplies, which were intended to be ample for a siege of many years. Their confidence in their gods was bolstered by their confidence in their city. Okay, now for the handwriting on the walls, Daniel 5, verses 5 through 9. Let's dig in. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my, my, my hip joints are out of place. That's taking really hard. All right. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof, shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. I think Daniel is already the second ruler in the kingdom. <laughs> and, uh, then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known the king to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled and his countenance was changed in him and his lords were astonished. While the feast was in progress with his drinking of wine and shouting of praises to the gods of Babylon, suddenly there appeared the fingers of a man's hand which wrote on the plastered wall of the palace. With only the fingers of the hand visible and producing writing upon the wall, the spectacle immediately attracted attention, no doubt. I bet people were aghast. Whoa! A spiritual finger writing on the wall. Very interesting. In the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, archaeologists have uncovered a large throne room, 56 feet wide and 173 feet long, which probably was the scene of this banquet. Midway in the long wall opposite the entrance, there was a niche in front of which the king may well have been seated. Interestingly, the wall behind the niche was covered with white plaster, as described by Daniel, which would make an excellent background for such a writing, <laughs> and for uh, projecting on <laughs> lights on a screen, right? Anyway, if the scene can be reconstructed, it is probable that the banquet was illuminated by torches, which not only produced smoke, but fitful light that would only partially illuminate the great hall. As the writing according to Daniel was written, quote, over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. It may have appeared in an area of greater illumination, 
than the rest of the room, and thus also have attracted more attention. So you can probably visualize candlesticks on the walls all the way around the room, uh, plaster on top of some sort of brick construction. Most of it would be, in essence, fireproof or non-flammable for the most part, except for furniture and clothing and tables and that sort of thing. For the most part, it would be non-flammable, but but nevertheless, the same was true of the Temple of Jerusalem, which is made of stone. But uh, there was so much goodies in in the building that the fire burned with such great heat that the gold on the walls uh, infiltrated into the gaps between the stones, right? And and condensed, congealed in those gaps. But as Yahshua said, every stone will be thrown down, and they were. But the reason they were thrown down was because the Roman soldiers, seeing that the gold had infiltrated into the cracks between the stones, said, hey, we got to take these stones down. We want this gold, right? This is how the prophecy of Yahshua was completely fulfilled. Okay, continuing. The effect upon the king and his associates was immediate. According to Daniel, his countenance changed, that is, changed color and became pale. His thin courage, bolstered by wine drunk from vessels which Nebuchadnezzar had plundered, and were seemingly a symbol of the power of the gods of Babylon, now deserted him. He was instead filled with terror to the point that the joints of his loin were loosened and his knees smote one against the other. Uh, knee knocker, right? In this, in his excitement, he no longer could sit down but hardly had the strength to stand. Probably before the babble of conversation in the banquet room had subsided, the king began to cry aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Only three classes of wise men are mentioned, but it is doubtful whether any class would intentionally be omitted, as verse 8 refers to all the king's wise men. The astrologers were actually the magicians. The Chaldeans were a broad class of scholars and learned men in the lore of the Babylonians, and of course all of Chaldea preceding Babylon. And the soothsayers corresponded more closely to the modern concept of astrologers, although they may have also practiced sorcery. It is possible in the decline of the Babylonian Empire that the number of the wise men was far more limited at this point in history than it was under Nebuchadnezzar. In any event, there is no proof for the suggestion discussed by Kyle that the classification of wise men mentioned purposely excluded Daniel. As Kyle points out, the king was ready to listen to anyone who could interpret the writing. Of course, Belshazzar would have known of Daniel's fame as an interpreter of visions and dreams. So he might not have called Daniel immediately, but only later. As soon as a suitable number of the wise men had assembled, the king addressed them offering the reward that if one of them could read that writing and show the interpretation, he would be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and become the third ruler in the kingdom. To be clothed in scarlet and to wear a chain of gold about the neck were special tokens of the king's favor and certainly would have been coveted by any of the wise men. Much speculation has arisen concerning the expression that he offered them the position of being the third ruler in the kingdom. 
there is some question as to whether the Aramaic indicates specifically the third ruler. The ordinal num- numeral would be, oh, this is Aramaic, something like Tila Ta'i, as in Daniel 2.39, whereas the Aramaic here is actually Talti, T-L-T-I. Scholars are not agreed as to the precise meaning of this term, but the suggestion is made that it may be a title for an office of honor, which that did not necessarily correspond precisely to the meaning of the word. As Kyle expresses it, quote, it is not quite certain what the princely situation is which promised the interpreter of the writing, that it is not the ordinal of the number that third is hence Habernick now generally acknowledged. Okay, so it's not necessarily the number third. Or a third? <laughs> a second third? Okay. However, recent scholarship has tended to confirm the translation third ruler. Franz Rosenthal, for instance, confidently states or translates the term one-third ruler or triumvir. Okay. Not third in rank, but one-third. So you have a, a triumvirate of, of rulership. That would be very interesting. In spite of the problem in the word, it is probable that the offer of honor was that of being the third ruler. Belshazzar under Nabonidus was considered the second ruler, and the position of a third ruler would be the highest that he could offer. Belshazzar was evidently in no mood to bargain, but was terrified and desperately desired to know the meaning of the writing. The large reward that was offered, however, was to no avail, for the wise men who assembled could not read the writing nor interpret it. This implies a twofold difficulty. Some have claimed that the text does not plainly indicate the language. Charles, for instance, suggests that the writing was in unfamiliar ideograms. This, however, is mere conjecture. The probability is that the writing was in Aramaic and therefore not entirely unknown to the wise men. In any case, Daniel reading the writing as Aramaic and the suggestion of puns in the language, see later discussion, depends upon the Aramaic. The difficulty of the wise men in reading the writing may have been that it was written in Aramaic script without the vowels being supplied. But if written in cuneiform, the vowels would have been included. Daniel does not explain the difficulty in reading the writing on the wall, but the problem apparently was not that it was a strange language, but rather what the words signified prophetically. Yes, that's obviously the case. For further discussion, see Exposition of Daniel 5, 25-27. Yeah, it was the meaning of the prophetic language that perplexed all the soothsayers in the, in the area. Okay. That's, that's pretty much obvious from the Bible itself. The inability of the wise men to decipher the writing only increased the concern of Belshazzar. Perhaps the full force of his wickedness in using the vessels taken from the temple in Jerusalem had begun to dawn upon him. Well, maybe not. He probably never, never even considered that. Or the fear suppressed concerning the presence of the armies which surrounded Babylon may now be emerged. His concern was shared by the entire assembly. Belshazzar's predicament is another illustration of the insecurity and powerlessness of the rulers of this world when confronted by the power and wisdom of God. How God holds in derision the rulers of the world who take counsel against him. Psalm 2, 1-4 Like Nebuchadnezzar before him, 
Belshazzar was soon to experience divine judgment, but without the happy ending. Now also, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, uh, Babylon was the third kingdom in the vision of John in the Apocalypse, in which it states there will be an eighth kingdom resembling one of the previous seven. Obviously, since the new kingdom is called Mystery Babylon, (laughs) and the third one in the vision was called Babylon, it goes, uh, it's not hard to digest or decipher what what kingdom was reborn as the eighth beast. Of course, we're talking about uh, Babylon, where the fractional reserve banking system was invented. And the last beast, the eighth beast, Mystery Babylon, is the ultimate height of power that the fractional reserve banking system can give to any ruler. And of course, we know that ruler is the House of Rothschild. Okay, so let's continue. Daniel suggested as the interpreter. Now, it's possible that, I'm pretty sure that uh, Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel that high rank. It may have been taken away from him by uh, Nebuchadnezzar's successor. But let's continue. Daniel 5, verses 10 through 12. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house. And the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Forasmuch as an excellent spirit, and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams, and showing of hard sentences, and dissolving of doubts, were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar, B-E-L-T-E, Shazar, Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Okay, so there's an additional syllable to the word Belshazzar. Very interesting. The crisis produced by the inability of the wise men to interpret the handwriting on the wall is met by the entrance of one described as the queen. Much speculation surrounds the identity of this person as it is related to the larger question of Belshazzar's lineage. Kyle and Leupold both consider her to be a wife of Nebuchadnezzar and the mother of Belshazzar. As the wives of the lords and the king himself had earlier been declared to be at the banquet, one who had the role of queen would most probably be Belshazzar's mother. She had not attended the banquet. This would be understandable if she was elderly and the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. If she were the wife of Nabonidus, who was in captivity, she probably would not have desired to come alone. Hearing the unusual clamor at the banquet and learning of the distress of her son, Because of her position, she was able to enter the banquet freely and speak to the king. Her address is courteous. O king, live forever, but directly to the point. Like a mother, she told her son, in effect, to pull himself together because there must be some solution to his problem. As one holding her position was normally highly regarded and treated with respect, she could speak out in a way that no other could. 
Honoring of parents was characteristic of the Israelites. Uh, Numerous quotations here. The same was true of the non-Israelite world. And the Dowager Queen was able to enter the banquet hall without an invitation. Montgomery, opposing the idea that the Queen is Belshazzar's wife, comments, quote, Also, the lady's masterful appearance on the scene betokens rather the Queen Mother than the consort. Jeffrey likewise writes, she speaks to him of his father in a way that suggests a mother speaking to a son rather than to a wife or than a wife to a husband. Yeah, that's the way it sounds. The solution, the wife would not have known these things more than likely. The solution to the problem which the queen suggested was that they invite Daniel the prophet who had been discovered as a man of wisdom by Nebuchadnezzar to interpret the writing. The queen uses the very words which presumably she had heard Nebuchadnezzar express from Daniel 4, 8, 9, and 18. According to the queen, Daniel had the spirit of the holy gods. In the time of Nebuchadnezzar, to whom she refers as thy father, Daniel had been found to have the wisdom of gods and possessing light. That is enlightenment. So understanding all of this, uh, Daniel had to be quite old, because this was 70 years ago. So, but of course, the Israelites who, who had a clean life and good food and plenty of sunshine and fresh air and clean water would tend to live a long time. All right. So Daniel was no exception. So great was his genius that Nebuchadnezzar had made him master or chief of his wise men, which in itself was a remarkable position for one who was not a Chaldean. And this honor placed upon him testified to the confidence of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's abilities. The reference to Nebuchadnezzar as the father of Belshazzar, as previously indicated, should probably be either grandfather or great-grandfather, as the same term would be used for any of these designations. It does imply, however, that Belshazzar was in descent from Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's excellent qualities manifested themselves in an excellent spirit an unusual knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams, difficult sentences, and dissolving of doubts, that is, solutions to problems. The word for doubts is kateri, is actually knots, K-N-O-T-S, joints, difficult problems. Daniel had not been assembled with the other wise men because he probably was in semi-retirement and was no longer chief of the wise men. The queen urged, however, that now he be brought in to solve the present problem. Very good. Daniel now is called before the king. Daniel 5, verses 13 through 16. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel which art of the children of the captivity of Judah? Oh, I love this translation. Art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry, (laughs) out of the Judahites, I have even heard of thee, that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing, and make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee, 
that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. And so I think, yeah, he's talking about a triumvirate here. But let's continue. When Daniel was brought before the king, he addressed a natural question to reassure himself of the identity of Daniel. It seems clear that Belshazzar knew something of Daniel, for his form of address in verse 13 goes beyond the information supplied by his mother. He knew, for instance, that Daniel was of the captivity of Judah, and that he was one of the captives which Nebuchadnezzar had brought out of Jerusalem. It may well be that because of awareness of his ancestry and religious convictions, that Daniel had been demoted by Belshazzar himself. Now, Belshazzar was all too eager to have the gifts of this man exercised to interpret the writing. Belshazzar goes on in verse 14 to repeat what his mother had said concerning Daniel's wisdom. Belshazzar informs Daniel of the inability of all the wise men either to read or interpret the writing. Belshazzar then offers Daniel the same promise he made to others of being clothed with scarlet and having a chain of gold and the privilege of being the third ruler, that is, the triumvir. As in the previous instances in Daniel 2 and 4, the wisdom of the world is demonstrated to be totally unable to solve its major problems, and that certainly is true today, and to understand either the present or the future. Daniel, as the prophet of God, is the channel through which divine revelation would come. And Belshazzar, in his extremity, was willing to listen. Yeah, he sure was. Too often the world, like Belshazzar, is not willing to seek wisdom of God until its own bankruptcy it becomes evident. <laughs> are we seeing the bankruptcy of Mystery Babylon today, folks? I think we are. It's not totally imminent, but I can say that the plan, the master plan of inoculating everybody by 2013 or 2023 and disposing of several billion people, they're not even close to that. We'll see. Maybe I I can uh, go down to the uh, Georgia Guidestones on my way back from Philadelphia and take a look at that uh, monument, which is dedicated to the elimination I forget how old it is, of billions of people. The elimination of billions of people. And, of course, they found the mechanism, which is, of course, COVID. And now they're going to starve us to death because COVID is not killing people fast enough. All right, let's continue. The situation before Belshazzar had all the elements of a great drama. It sure did. Everybody's hanging on his words. Everybody's terrified. Here was Daniel, an old man well into his 80s, with the marks of godly living evident in his bearing, in sharp contrast to the wine-flushed faces of the crowd. In the midst of this atmosphere of consternation, apprehension, and fear, Daniel's countenance alone reflected the deep peace of God founded on confidence in God and his divine revelation. Okay, another long quote here from chapter 5. Daniel's rebuke. Of Belshazzar. Okay, well, I guess while Belshazzar had, his knees were knocking and his hip joints were out of place, he, he wouldn't be able to do much about somebody, uh, you know, chewing him out. Daniel 5, verses 17 through 23. 
Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom, and majesty, and glory, and honor. And and, and Nebuchadnezzar actually proclaimed it Yahweh, was the creator of the universe and the greatest of all gods. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would, slew, whom he, would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne And they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men. And his heart was made like the beasts. And his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men. And that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. And now his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold and brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified." Okay, get to the point, Daniel. (laughs) Interpret the dream already, or the vision. Daniel's reply to the king is properly called a sermon. And as king says, what a great sermon. Yeah, right. Yeah, if the situation weren't uh, as desperate as it was, the, the king would have probably slain Daniel right away. Daniel begins by disavowing any interest in the gifts or rewards which the king offered. This was not prompted by disrespect nor by the evident fact that they would be short-lived. What Daniel is saying is that he will give an unprejudiced interpretation with no attempt to seek favor from the king. He promises both to read and to make known the interpretation. In addressing the king, Daniel does not begin with a formal salutation as he does, for instance, in the connection with Darius in Daniel 6.21 where he says, O king, live forever. No doubt Daniel holds Belshazzar in contempt for a desecration of the sacred vessels. However, the narration here must be considered in the form of a condensation, and probably Daniel addressed the king in a formal way. A parallel is found in Daniel 2.27, where Daniel addresses Nebuchadnezzar without formal greeting, and in Daniel 4.19, where Daniel replies to Nebuchadnezzar simply with the expression, quote, my lord. This was hardly a time in any case for Daniel to greet Belshazzar with such an expression as he gave to Darius, O king, live forever. Yeah, because he knew he wasn't going to live forever. When, as a matter of fact, Belshazzar's hours were numbered. Instead, in verse 18, he recognized him as king, but then immediately delivers his prophetic message of condemnation. Daniel first reminds Belshazzar that God gave Nebuchadnezzar his great kingdom and the honor that went with it. Daniel describes graphically in verse 19 how Nebuchadnezzar was feared and had absolute authority of life and death over his people and accordingly was an absolute sovereign. 
As Young points out, however, the very character of this absolute authority delegated to Nebuchadnezzar by God also made him responsible. This is demonstrated and supported by Nebuchadnezzar's experience of insanity in Daniel 4, when, as Daniel expresses it, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Daniel then itemizes in detail the characteristics of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, how he lived with the wild beasts, ate grass like the ox, and was wet with the dew of heaven. All of this, uh, of course, condensed on the grass. All of this proved that God was greater than Nebuchadnezzar and held him responsible for his authority. Only when Nebuchadnezzar was properly humbled did God restore him to his glory and kingdom. Okay, and of course, that period of crawling on the ground, acting like an animal, lasted for seven years. And those seven years represent the seven kingdoms of Revelation. That's a prophetic vision, because ultimately, in the book of Revelation, the four kingdoms mentioned in Daniel will become seven kingdoms. And uh, the seventh was, of course, Napoleon. Only later on, towards the very end of Revelation, is there an eighth beast mentioned. That's mentioned in Revelation chapter 17. Previous to that, it's always seven kingdoms. But let's continue. These facts are pertinent to Belshazzar's situation as they were well known by everyone as Daniel expresses it in verse 22. And this, thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thy heart, though thou knowest all this. The contrast between the supreme power of Nebuchadnezzar and the very limited power of Belshazzar is also evident. Belshazzar was not even the first ruler in the kingdom and was humiliated by the fact that Babylon was besieged and had already lost its power over the provinces surrounding the city. Now, it's also interesting, I don't know if this article gets into it, but the uh, Persians uh, had attacked the city through the river. I think they they either dug a ditch underneath, uh, that would be very difficult to dig a ditch underneath the wall, the massive walls around the city. Or they, oh, no, I remember now they had actually blocked the river and diverted it around Babylon so that that river dried up and the Persians just walked right in. (laughs) Okay, very good. Although the scripture does not say so expressly, it is probable that the message of Daniel to the king was heard by the entire company. It would have been quite improper for the entire company to keep on talking. And of course, they'd be terrified and wondering... Let's hear it. Let's hear it, Daniel. They, they'd be entranced, you know, hanging on every word. Especially in these dramatic circumstances when Daniel was reporting to the king, they would naturally want to hear what he had to say. Of course, one can dwell, or well imagine, the tense moment as these ringing words reached every ear in the vast hall in a death-like silence that greeted Daniel's prophetic utterance. Here was a, it's a, the narrative is good, but it's quite verbose. A lot, a lot of extraneous words here being used. It's really dragging this commentary out much more than need, need be. Anyway, here was a man who did not fear the man and feared only God. Daniel spoke in measured tones, the condemnation of that which was blasphemous in the sight of the holy God. There was, however, nothing insolent or discourteous in Daniel's address to the king. And the charges were stated in a factual and objective way. 
In any case, the king was in no position to dispute with Daniel, even though Daniel's words brought even greater fear and apprehension to his heart, no doubt. All right, now we're getting to the nitty-gritty Daniel's interpretation of the writing. Daniel 5, verses 24 through 28. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Mini, Mini, Tekel, Huparsin. M-E-N-E, M-E-N-E, T-E-K-E-L, Uparsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mini, God had numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, or Uparsin, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Okay, this is like the last thing Belshazzar wanted to hear. But that's what he heard. In beginning his explanation of the handwriting on the wall, Daniel first of all reads the writing. And for the first time, the words are introduced into the text of this chapter. Transliterated into English, they are given as Mini, Mini, Tekel, Uparshan. There has been almost endless critical discussion as to what the meaning of the inscription is. And the interpretation is complicated by a number of factors. In the book of Daniel, the words are given in Aramaic, but some have questioned this. It was written in Aramaic script, however. Only the consonants may have appeared. If in cuneiform, the vowels would be included. While in ordinary discourse, the lack of vowels could normally be supplied rather easily. In a cryptic statement such as this, the addition of the vowels is a problem. The inscription on the wall may have appeared like this, MN, MN, TQL, UPRSN. The order of the letters in in the Aramaic, of course, would be the reverse of this, that is, from right to left. And so that could possibly be it as well. Certainly the the astrologers would have been able to read in Aramaic because that was the language of the day, the lingua franca. Young suggests, after some of the rabbis, (laughs) what rabbis? What do we care about rabbis? That the characters may have been written vertically. And in that case, in the Aramaic order, they would have appeared as follows. P-T-M-M, R-Q-N-N, and S-L. If, in addition to the complications of the Aramaic, a language which was known, some unfamiliar form... Okay, sorry. I should have been reading this vertically. So, from left to right. Let me read it from right to left. MN in vertical writing. MN again. TQL and PRS. These are the words written vertically from right to left. If, in addition to the complications of the Aramaic, a language which is known, some unfamiliar form of their characters was used, it would indeed have required divine revelations to give a suitable explanation and interpretation and may account for the difficulty in reading the writing. Because of the variety of words that could be identified merely by the consonants, another suggestion has been made. Mene, or M-E-N-E, could be considered equivalent to the Manah of Ezekiel 45.12. 
Ezra 2.16, or 69 rather, Tekal could be considered as representing the Hebrew Shekel. Perez could be read as Peras, or a half Mane, although this identification is questionable. Under this interpretation, the writing would read a Mane, a Mane, a Shekel, and a half Mane. Having arrived at this conclusion, however, it still remains to be determined what it means. <laughs> Young, in his discussions on this point, gives J. Demelli, Prince, the credit for the suggestion that the Mane refers to Nebuchadnezzar, the shekel of much less value to Belshazzar, and the half Menas refers to the Medes and Persians. Daniel's explanation, however, is far more cogent and reasonable and does not give any indication that the words mean other than what he indicates. Actually, I think that these uh, letters, their, um, their value is 1260, the very common three and a half years that uh, is referenced many times in Scripture. So, uh, But I forget the exact relationship between uh, this date, 539 B.C., and 1260 years later. That would t- take us into the first century, possibly to the year 600 A.D., when the Mohammedans came to power. Um, I think I remember reading a, an essay that had figured this out in terms of the number 1260. But leave that for now. So, Ezra 269, Tekel, again, could be considered as representing the Hebrew Shekel, Perez, or half mana, and the, the mana would be your uh, full mana, of course. So, let's continue. Daniel's explanation is far more cogent and reasonable and does not give any indication that the words mean other than what he indicates. The word many means numbered. And Daniel interprets this in verse 26 as indicated, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. it. Is in keeping with the idea that man's days are numbered and the repetition of the word twice is probably for emphasis. Like the other words, it is a passive participle. Tekel means weighed with the thought that Belshazzar has been put into the balance and found wanting. That is short of true weight. Perez means divided and is merely another form of uparsin, as in verse 25, having the U, which is equivalent to the English and, with farsin being the plural of Perez. Leupold suggests that farsin could be understood by changing the vowels to be Persians. Farsi, very interesting, and might have a double meaning as indicated by Daniel's explanation given to the Medes and Persians. A pun may be intended on this third word, having been interpreted to mean divided. It is also understood as a reference to the American word for Persian, thereby hinting a Persian victory over Babylon. The interpretation of Daniel is clear and much more satisfactory than the alternatives offered by some expositors. Belshazzar is made to understand that Babylon will be given to the Medes and Persians. Even while Daniel was interpreting the writing on the wall, the prophecy was being fulfilled as the Medes and Persians poured into the city, having diverted the river and gone to the underground area vacated by the river.
Next section, Daniel's reward and prophecy fulfilled. And ultimately, the, the reason I'm reading all of this is to show that, number one, it has been proven that Belshazzar did in fact exist. The entire dynasty from Nebuchadnezzar down to Belshazzar has been determined by archaeologists, and therefore it's all historical. So again, the Bible is true in every critical liar. Okay, Daniel's reward of the prophecy and the prophecy fulfilled. <clears throat> Daniel 5, verses 29-31. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, and put a chain of gold about his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Medean took the kingdom being about three score and two years old. Okay, so Daniel probably was hiding back in his chambers, <laughs> no doubt. The drama of the writing on the wall and its interpretation is now brought to its fulfillment as Belshazzar keeps his promise. Daniel is clothed with scarlet, a chain of gold, and blah, blah, that he is now the third ruler. All of these honors, however, were short-lived and useless. <laughs> Maybe it lasted a few hours, as Daniel well knew, and typical of the honors of this world. In its rise to power, the Babylonian Empire had conquered Jerusalem, taken its inhabitants into captivity, looted its beautiful temple, and completely destroyed the city. The only such worldly honor ever offered to me was to be a member of the Freemasons, which I rejected. Yet this empire was to have as its last official act the honoring of one of these captives who by divine revelation predicted not only the downfall of Babylon but the course of the times of the nations until the Son of Man should come from heaven. Man may have the first word, but God will have the last word. Now for Herodotus. Herodotus gives an interesting account of the circumstances surrounding the capture of Babylon. Quote, Cyrus then advanced against Babylon, but the Babylonians, having taken the field, awaited his coming, and when he advanced near the city, the Babylonians gave battle, and being defeated, were shut up in the city. But as they had been long aware of the restless spirit of Cyrus, and saw that he attacked all nations alike, they had laid up provisions for many years and therefore were under no apprehensions about a siege. On the other hand, Cyrus found himself in a difficulty, since much time had elapsed and his affairs were not at all advanced. Whether therefore someone else made the suggestion to him in his perplexity, or whether he himself devised the plan, he had recourse to the, <coughs> <excuse me. coughs> he had recourse to the following stratagem. Having stationed the bulk of his army near the passage of the river, where it enters Babylon, and again having stationed another division beyond the city, where the river makes its exit, he gave order to his forces to enter the city as soon as they should see the stream fordable. Having stationed his forces and given these directions, he himself marched away with the ineffective part of his army, and having come to the lake, Cyrus did the same with respect to the river and the lake as the queen of the Babylonians had done. For having diverted the river by means of a canal into the lake, which was before a swamp, 
He made the ancient channel fordable by the sinking of the river. When this took place, the Persians who were appointed to that purpose close to the stream of the river, which had now subsided to about the middle of a man's thigh, entered Babylon by this passage. If, however, the Babylonians had been aware of it beforehand or had known what Cyrus was about, they would not have suffered the Persians to enter the city, but would have utterly destroyed them. For having shut all of the little gates that lead to the river and mounting the walls that extend along the banks of the river, they would have caught them as in a net, whereas the Persians came upon them by surprise. It is related by the people who inhabited this city that by reason of its great extent, when they who were at the extremities were taken, those of the Babylonians who inhabited the center knew nothing of the capture, for it happened to be a festival, but they were dancing at the time, oh, just like on the Titanic, and enjoying themselves till they received certain information of the truth, and thus Babylon was taken for the first time. I guess it was taken later, but not under the Babylonians. Or maybe it was taken again by the Persians, but we'll see. Kyle discusses at length both Herodotus' account and that of Xenophon in his Cyropedia, which is similar, and summarizes the arguments of Kranichfeld, discounting these records. Well, that certainly is good strategy. (laughs) Discoveries since Kyle tend to support Herodotus and Xenophon, although not accounting for Darius the Mede. The battle probably took place much as Herodotus records it. Prophecy anticipating the fall of Babylon is found in both Isaiah and Jeremiah, written many years before. Isaiah and Jeremiah had prophesied that Babylon would fall to the Medes on just such a night of revelry as Daniel records. Some of these prophecies may have their ultimate fulfillment in the future. Yes, thank you very much. He is referring to Revelation 17 and 18. More specifically of the invasion of the Medes, Isaiah writes, quote, Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Medea, and continues, After describing their dismay, My heart panted, fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure hath he turned into fear unto me. Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise, ye princes, and anoint the shield. Unquote. This is from Isaiah 21, verses 4 and 5. Finally, the tidings come. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. And this is Isaiah 21.9. Okay, now I know what he means by the first time. He's also arguing that Mystery Babylon is the second falling. All right, that's why we have it here in Isaiah. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And of course, we have the same terminology in Revelation 18, referring to the fall of ancient Babylon and the fall of Mystery Babylon, which is coming right up, folks. (laughs) It's coming right up. And I will make drunk her princes and her wise men, her captains and her rulers and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, saith the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus, saith the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken and her high gates shall be burned with fire. Of course, that's Jeremiah 51, verses 57 through 58, almost a verbatim 
of the description uh, description of the fall of mystery Babylon in Revelation. Excuse me. The account of Cyrus himself of the fall of Babylon has now been recovered in an inscription on a clay barrel. Marduk, the great lord, protector of his people, worshippers, beheld with pleasure his, Cyrus's, good deeds and his upright mind, literally heart, and therefore ordered him to march against his city, Babylon. He made him set out on the road to Babylon, going at his side like a real friend. His widespread troops, their number like that of the water of a river, could not be established, strolled along, their weapons packed away. Without any battle, he made him enter his town, Babylon, sparing Babylon any calamity. He delivered into his, that is Cyrus's hands, Nabonidus, the king who did not worship him, i.e. Marduk. And of course, this uh, this inscription, since Nabonidus was still in effect king or co-ruler, or two parts of a potential triumvirate, as was previously discussed, there is no contradiction in this inscription. Let's continue. Daniel himself records with graphic simplicity the fulfillment of his prophecy in the words, In that night was Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, slain. The concluding verse of the chapter in English versification records or records how Darius the Median became ruler of Babylon at the age of 62, The identity of this conqueror, unknown outside the Bible by this name, has touched off endless controversy and discussion, which will be considered in the next chapter. Okay, so they dispute the existence of Darius as well. Will these critics never learn? No, they won't, because they hate the Bible. The long chapter devoted to this incident, which brought the Babylonian Empire to its close, is undoubtedly recorded in the Word of God, not only for its historic fulfillment of the prophecies relative to the Babylonian Empire, but also as an illustration of divine dealing with a wicked world. Yeah, of course. The downfall of Babylon is in type the downfall of the unbelieving world. Yeah. Uh, Ain't going to be many people left (laughs) surviving the destruction of mystery Babylon, folks. How many months are we going to be employed burying the dead? In many respects, modern civilization is much like ancient Babylon, resplendent with its monuments of architectural triumph, as secure as human hands and ingenuity can make it, and yet defenseless against the judgment of God at the proper hour. Contemporary civilization is similar to ancient Babylon in that it has much to foster human pride, but little to provide human security. Yeah, in fact, it's, uh, it's deadly. Much as Babylon fell at the 16th day of Tishri, October 11th or 12th, 539 B.C., as indicated in the Nabonidus Chronicle. Okay, so they can actually give us an exact date, October 11th or 12th. So the world will be overtaken by disaster when the day of the Lord comes, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. The disaster of the world, however, does not overtake the child of God. Daniel survives the purge and emerges triumphant as one of the presidents of the new kingdom in chapter 6. Yeah, yeah, I want to be president. Okay, one more long quotation here before a uh, a bunch of notations following the actual text. 
And this is a, a long notation, number 245. The actual text of Barosus is as follows, quote, After beginning the wall of which I have spoken, Nebuchadnezzar fell sick and died. After a reign of 43 years, and the realm passed to his son, evil Marduk. This prince, whose government was arbitrary and licentious, fell a victim to a plot being assassinated by his sister's husband, Nereglissar, after a reign of two years. On his death, Nereglissar, his murderer, succeeded to the throne and reigned for four years. His son, Laboroso Ardok, a mere boy, occupied it for nine months, when, owing to the depraved disposition which he showed, a conspiracy was formed against him. So we have a depraved boy. <laughs> How depraved could a boy be compared to these, to these adults? And he was beaten to death by his friends. After his murder, the conspirators had held a meeting and by common consent conferred the kingdom upon Nabonidus, a Babylonian, and one of their gang. In his reign, the walls of Babylon abutting on the river were magnificently built with baked brick and bitumen. In the 17th year of his reign, Cyrus advanced from Persia with a large army, and after subjugating the rest of the kingdom, marched upon Babylonia. A prize of his coming, Nabonidus led his army to meet him, fought, and was defeated, whereupon he fled with a few followers and shut himself up in the town of Borsippa. Cyrus took Babylon and after giving orders to raise the outer walls of the city, because it resented a very redoubtable, I think it should be reading, presented, it presented a very redoubtable and formidable appearance, proceeded to Borsippa to besiege Nabonidus. The latter surrendering without waiting for investment was humanely treated by Cyrus, who dismissed him from Babylonia, but gave him Carmania for his residence. There, Nabonidus spent the remainder of his life, and there he died. And also, okay, so this is quoted from Flavius Josephus against Appion in Josephus 1, 221-225. For discussion of Josephus' account, see Kyle, okay? So, I mean, the value of the book of Josephus is inestimable. It's a fantastic book that... Um, if you have the time, <laughs> between now and the Day of Judgment, pick up a copy of Josephus. Josephus was not a Jew. He was a Judahite. He was also uh, a general in the Roman army, but he was true to his people and actually tried to save his people, the Judahites and other Israelites, when he was uh, you know, working for the Romans. So a very, very accurate history. Very, very little that uh, that I've read from Josephus has any major flaws. No major flaws at all. He, his book uh, simply retells the story of the Old Testament with plenty of details added that no one else could possibly fill in. Okay, so we have about half an hour left. And so I preferred... Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, Brother Abraham says, yeah, weighed and found wanting, of course, the bankers. Yeah, well, guess what? Paper money doesn't weigh anything. <laughs> Digital money doesn't weigh anything, right? Mystery Babylon is found wanting. It's all a con game. And you, you can't weigh a datum. 
You can't weigh a blip on a computer screen. And that's reality, folks. Very good observation, Brother Abar. Very good. All right. So to fill uh, this half hour, I've uh, found this very good document here. Again, we're basing on archaeology. Biblical archaeology's top 10 discoveries of 2021. From Christianity Today. It's been a while since I've read anything from Christianity Today. I used to subscribe to it, but it was so Judeo I couldn't stand it. (laughs) All right, but nevertheless, there's a lot of good archaeological articles in Christianity Today. But let's continue. International. Biblical archaeology's top 10 discoveries of 2021. Evidence of Herod's green thumb, Roman crucifixion methods, and Philistine bananas add to our understanding of the world, or yeah, the world of the Bible. So a picture of Mahmud Khaled standing amidst ruins here. Not sure where those ruins are. Anyway, archaeology takes years, decades, and even half centuries. The painstaking work of digging and sifting is followed by longer stretches of waiting, analyzing, and interpreting. But the past 12 months have seen regular announcements of developments and discoveries, some expected but some quite surprising, that deepen and broaden our understanding of the world of the Bible. So I'm wondering if the... uh, the discovery of the small tablet at Mount Ebal and also uh, a similar tablet in uh, Elephantine down up the Nile River, both of which contain the name of Yahweh, and uh, one dated at 1406 B.C., the one at Mount Ebal, which is the exact year that the Israelites attacked Canaan land, and another inscription on uh, Nile River that's even older than that. So, well, where were the Israelites? (laughs) In Egypt, right? So let's continue. From the breaking archaeological news of 2021, here are the top 10 stories. 10. Herod the Great's Green Thumb King Herod, best known in the Bible for ordering the deaths of any infants who might be Jesus' age, turns out to have had a gardening hobby. Soil samples from excavations at his Jericho palace, taken almost half a century ago, were recently analyzed, and the pollen particles revealed sophisticated horticulture. Miniature pine, cypress, cedar, and olive trees grew in clay pots that were originally recovered by archaeologist Ehud Netzer. Many of the tree species would not typically have grown in the desert around Jericho making the garden a demonstration of Herod's greatness. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Well, just like the Rothschilds are, you know, make great donations to charity, right? Philanthropists, yeah. Yeah, Herod was a philanthropist, yeah, sure. Herod's greatness, a, a horticultural feat to impress guests. As, yeah, just like the Rothschilds and Rockefellers. They have million-dollar paintings hanging on the walls and great statues in front of their residences and their museums and blah, blah, blah. They're great, aren't they? Number nine, Herod's Seaside Entertainment Complex. The Israel Antiquities Authority announced the rediscovery and preservation of Herod the Great's Basilica in Ashkelon. 
Herod was known in his time for the dramatic locations of his palaces and fortresses, and this Roman-style construction, a public building for community activities, was no exception. This also proves that Herod was a pagan. He built a lot of Roman-style construction and statues of Roman gods and Roman personages. The huge edifice, larger than a football field, was first excavated over a century ago, but is now being re-excavated and developed to attract visitors to the Tel Ashkelon National Park. The final reconstruction will include a small ancient theater called an Odeon, marble pillars and capitals, and huge marble statues of pagan deities. There you go. Pagan deities. Eight. A biblical pharaoh's border monument. Discovered in a farmer's field in northeastern Egypt, this inscribed monument bears the name of one of the few pharaohs actually named in the Old Testament. Hophra led an Egyptian army into Judah to help King Zedekiah resist an invasion by Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar. Didn't work, did it? <laughs> we were not supposed to make uh, compacts with pagan nations. That's why it didn't work. The ploy was only temporarily successful and true to the prophecy in Jeremiah 44.30. The Pharaoh was killed by his enemies after a disastrous foray into Libya. The stele contains 15 lines of hieroglyphics so far untranslated. Mustafa Waziri Secretary General of the Egyptian Supreme Council of Antiquities described it as a border stele, which the king erected during his military campaigns towards the east. This raises the uh, intriguing possibility that it might describe Hofra's campaign to support Zedekiah. Very good. Like I said, all biblical archaeology has proven the Bible to be true. And I'm sure these two Sites are no uh, no exception. Seven, an unknown Egyptian city. Archaeologists announced the discovery of a previously unknown city on the west bank of the Nile near Luxor. Believed to be one of the largest Egyptian cities ever unearthed, it dates to the reign of Pharaoh Amenhotep III. This pharaoh was the grandfather of Tutankhamun, but more importantly perhaps the grandson of Amenhotep II, believed by many evangelical scholars to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. That is probably correct, and Amenhotep III uh, would would have taken over from his father in, in controlling Canaan land, and the entirety of Canaan land was under tribute to the Egyptians throughout the reigns of these uh, various pharaohs that were just named. Excuse me. <coughs> wow. A crucifixion... Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, there's more here. Under number seven. The city appears to have been suddenly abandoned. The inhabitants may have been driven out of their homes when Amenhotep IV, better known as Ashkenaten, or, sorry, <laughs> Akhenaten. No, he was not an Ashkenazi. Akhenaten rounded up workers to build him a completely new capital city in central Egypt. 
What remains today may reveal many details of daily life in Egypt around the time of Moses. I think Akhenaten was the uh, the pharaoh of monotheism. Number six, a crucifixion foot. We'll find out what this means. The Roman practice of crucifixion is well known from ancient sources, including the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. But up until this month, the only archaeological evidence of crucifixion had been found in a burial cave in Israel in 1986. In early December, it was announced that a skeleton had been excavated from a grave at Fenstanton in Cambridgeshire. Okay, so England, of course. So what does a skeleton from England have to do with crucifixion in the Middle East? Maybe the Romans were doing that there too? The remains had a nail driven into the back of the right foot. The burial dates to around A.D. 400 during the Roman occupation of England. Okay, maybe there is a connection. Five. More Dead Sea discoveries. The Israel Antiquities Authority announced the results of a four-year excavation project in hard-to-reach caves overlooking the Dead Sea. Finds included Arrowhead. Now they have all these drones now, don't they? (laughs) I'll bet with these drones you can locate more and more caves that no one has ever even noticed or heard of. Finds include arrowheads, coins, combs, the mummified remains of a young girl, and dozens of scraps of biblical texts. The scroll fragments containing passages from Zechariah and Nahum are unrelated to the text produced by Qumran community, known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They nonetheless shed light on the long work of translating and transcribing scripture. Very good. For archaeologists, the most amazing discovery was a 10,500-year-old basket. Baskets last that long? <laughs> 10,500 year old basket. The basket, complete with intact lid, dates to the pre pottery Neolithic period, making it the oldest basket in existence. It is reminiscent of the biblical baskets, such as the one that held the baby Moses in Exodus the ones that carried the leftovers when Christ fed the multitudes in the Gospels, and the one that helped the Apostle Paul escape persecution when he was lowered over the wall of Damascus. Wow, 10,500-year-old basket. That makes it as old as Gobekli Tepe, which has been dated at 8,000 B.C. Number four, Yavne. Just Yavne. The modern city of Yavne, located between Tel Aviv and Ashdod, has been a prolific site for archaeological discoveries in 2021. The city is growing quickly, and as a large tract of land is prepared for new housing construction, archaeologists are uncovering amazing artifacts. Now, it's interesting, the archaeological site at Mount Nebal which uh, was given so much publicity this year, that's been under excavation for a really long time, maybe even 50 years, but it's, it's uh, come and go. And uh, the, 
the metal, or the I believe it was lead, the lead inscription was found in one of the piles of debris from the digging at Mount Nebal. And so they decided, well, let's go through the pile of debris. Let's see if we find something interesting. And lo and behold, they found a reference to uh, passages in the scriptures to just the period just before Joshua invading Palestine or Canaan land. Namely, the curse chapters at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and at the beginning of Joshua, where the Israelites were shouting curses from Mount Nebal and praises from the a nearby mountain. So they were shouting at each other across the valley. Anyway, getting back to this, Tel Aviv and Ashdod, Yavne. The city is growing quickly, and as a large tract of land is prepared for new housing construction, archaeologists are uncovering amazing artifacts. About 1,500 years ago, Yavne was an industrial center for wine production, producing approximately a half million gallons of wine per year. (laughs) That's more than uh, all of America. (laughs) I can't imagine how many millions of gallons we produce here. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. But let's see. And uh, yeah, we may get shortages of wine, folks. Uh, my uh, my sangria may run out one of these days. Okay, shudder. I'm shuddering. Anyway, let's see. Where did I leave off? Okay, half a million gallons of wine per year. That's a lot of grapes. Archaeologists uncovered five huge wine press production areas, each over half the size of a basketball court along with four huge warehouses and kilns for firing wine storage jars. They also found an older wine wine press from the Persian period, dated to around 300 B.C. In the decades after the destruction of the temple, I'm going to scratch out the word Jewish, the temple in Jerusalem, Yavne became a spiritual center, the home of many rabbis, and the Sanhedrin, although it is true that the Jews, the the uh, Pharisees and scribes and Sanhedrin were in control of the temple, so you could call it a temple, but a Jewish temple, but it wasn't built by Jews; it was built by Judaites. Yavne became a spiritual center, the home of many rabbis and the Sanhedrin. That's interesting. So. <laughs> Manashevitz wine. <laughs> that's that's where they first brewed Manashevitz wine. A building identified with that period has been excavated and a beautiful large mosaic from 1,600 years ago is being restored. Very interesting. Perhaps the rarest Yavne discovery was an intact chicken egg from 1,000 years ago found in the remains of a privy. Now, wait a minute. It says intact. Does that include the contents inside the shell? (laughs) That that must have smelled like sulfuric acid. Anyway, they were digging in an outhouse, a 1,000-year-old outhouse, and had a chicken egg. I guess that means that the shell hadn't been broken. What about the contents? 
They, they need to x-ray it to see what's inside there. <laughs> Maybe there's a monster chicken in there. Three, Temple Mount Banquet Hall. A luxurious public building located next to the Temple Mount has been excavated and open to public tours. Part of the building was first discovered by British archaeologist Charles Warren in 1867, and the site was partially excavated in 1966. Now that the excavation is complete, archaeologists have dated its construction to A.D. 20, during the lifetime of Jesus. The building contained two identical chambers, separated by an elaborate fountain. The luxurious nature of the facility and its adjacency to the Temple Mount indicates it was probably used by the elite members of the first century. Well, in this case, it would be Jewish community if you're talking A.D., Elite members of the first century Jewish community, those who survived the purge of Titus in 70 AD, right? Uh, and Masada came, I think, 50 years later. So there was indeed a Jewish community there. The families of the high priests and other leading religious figures. Archaeologists say it was damaged by an earthquake in AD 33. Very interesting. And then later rebuilt and reconfigured into the three vaulted halls. I wonder if they have pinpointed this date, because there's still dispute among many whether the crucifixion occurred in A.D. 30 or A.D. 33. This would be more evidence that A.D. 33 is the correct date. The destruction dates uh, suggest possible evidence of the earthquake recorded in the Gospel accounts at the crucifixion of Yahshua. Very good. Okay, well, we've been doing Gideon on Genesis to Revelation uh, in the last two weeks. Number two is Gideon's Jug. Jerob Baal is a nickname given to Gideon in Judges 6, 31 through 32, after Gideon destroyed an altar to the pagan god Baal. It means, let Baal contend with him. It is also the name found written on a pottery jug fragment excavated at Kirbat Er Rai, a site near Tel Lachish in southern Israel. It is unlikely the jug belonged to Gideon himself. Maybe. Maybe it was his jug. Kirbat Er Rai is located about 100 miles south of the Jezreel Valley, where the Bible says Gideon took a tiny army and routed a much larger force of Midianites. The archaeologists excavating at Kirbat Er Rai dated the stratum where the pottery was found at 1100 B.C., the period of the judges, but likely about a century after Gideon, based on the internal chronology of the Bible. Well, of course, whatever was found there is either dated to the date that it happened, or maybe it was created the same year, that the city was destroyed, or it could be older. It can't be, well, actually, it could be younger, too. Somebody might have <laughs> walked around carrying a jug and left it, and uh, so we might have a, something dated later. Anyway, there is little archaeological record of this period, though, so the discovery linking a biblical name to the era is notable. Yeah, well, because uh, basically... The whole area was destroyed by the Israelites and probably not inhabited after that.
Archaeologists also say the discovery provides evidence for the spread of the alphabetic writing first developed by Canaanites living in Egypt around 1800 B.C. Now, that information is correct. I mean, incorrect. It was not the Canaanites who created the first... uh, Maybe the Canaanites spread it, but uh, we have at Eurofolk Radio uh, a video in which the presenter claims that it was none other than Manasseh, son of Joseph, who helped codify the Hebrew that was used by Moses to write the Old Testament. Okay? So, there, but there's no, there's no possibility that the Canaanites could have invented the language because the Hebrews were the ones writing the Old Testament and the Canaanites would have learned that language from the Hebrews and or Egyptians. It could be a combination of both. So let's continue. Uh, Okay, nearby Lachish, where a few other late Bronze Age Canaanite alphabetic inscriptions have been found, may have been a center for the preservation of alphabetic writing. Well, of course, we have uh, uh, David and Saul and Solomon hiring Canaanite scribes, (laughs) right? When they shouldn't have done that writing our history for us. The discovery of an alphabetic inscription at Lachish, dated to the 15th century BC, was also announced in 2021. Okay, so I'm wondering how things are going in 2022. This is good stuff, though. The level of literacy in the Old Testament is still a matter of debate among scholars. Really? Really? It's obvious that Abraham could write. Ham, Shem, and Japheth all spoke the same language, which had to have been Hebrew or Proto-Hebrew, the origin, the original language before it was actually written down. And of course, remember, Enoch wrote uh, 365 books. So writing was much older than these people assume. Okay, and here, interestingly, the story of Gideon refers to a young man who, quote, wrote down the names of the 77 elders of Sukkoth, Judges 8.14. We read this this morning, and the significance of this statement uh, eluded me. Uh, We'll have to revisit this uh, on Saturday, but let me remind everybody, Uh, This weekend, there will be no live shows because I'm going to be in Texas, Texarkana, Texas, for a rally. And then the following weekend, I'm going to be in Philadelphia for Freedom Palooza. So uh, Freedom Palooza is open to the public. You can just uh, log on to freedompalooza.com, I I believe is the name of the website. So there won't be any live shows next week. So let's continue here. We have about nine minutes left. Number one, a second synagogue in Magdala. Anyway, what uh, number two proves yet again is that the historicity of the Bible is being proved over and over and over again by all of this current archaeology and all archaeology to begin with, right? There was a time when secular historians and archaeologists poo-pooed the idea of the nation of the Hittites. 
Nobody had ever heard any about any Hittites except in the Bible. So, lo and behold, somebody eventually discovered a Hittite city in central Turkey. I forget the name of it. But uh, again, the Bible has been proved correct and every critic a liar. Number one, second synagogue in Magdala. The University of Haifa announced the discovery of another first century synagogue at Magdala in late December, located on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The first Magdala synagogue, discovered a dozen years ago, was notable because it was in use before the destruction of Jerusalem, when worship was still centered at the temple. Now there are two. Only a handful of first century synagogues have been excavated in Israel. Of those, these are the ones most likely visited by Jesus during his ministry, Matthew 4.23. Because of their location near the Nazareth to Capernaum Road and their association with the hometown of Mary Magdalene. Now, it's a good question whether there were any rabbis, that is, Pharisaic rabbis, in this territory. I personally doubt it. I think that the Pharisaic rabbis were confined to the city of Jerusalem. They had their hands full controlling that. So this synagogue was probably Judahites and or Benjamites with with Levites thrown in. That's probably the case for these two synagogues. This second synagogue, located less than 200 yards from the first, was discovered while preparing for a road-widening project. It is now changing our understanding of Jewish life in this period. Again, this dates to 100 AD, something like that. And so it could have been taken over by Jews by this point in time, according to the Israel Antiquities Authority. Many scholars had thought synagogues flourished and took on a more religious function only after the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple. This new evidence seems to indicate that synagogues, which were more likely community centers in the early days, included more religious activities. Bonus! (laughs) Philistine bananas! Yes, we do have bananas. We know that Solomon fed his guests beef, lamb, venison, and poultry in addition to bread, cakes, dates, and other delicacies. But bananas? The amount of water needed to grow bananas makes them an unlikely fruit in ancient Israel. But a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences reported some unexpected remains were scraped off the teeth (laughs) of Canaanites. They weren't using floss. And Philistines, who died in the late 2nd millennia B.C., of course, the area was far more tropical in those days. It wasn't nearly as bone dry as it is today. This is the late second millennia BC, the period of Solomon's reign. Teeth don't lie. They ate bananas. The dietary evidence indicates, quote, a dynamic and complex exchange network connecting the Mediterranean with South Asia. According to the report, What about Africa? Don't they grow bananas in Africa? That would have been a much shorter trip. Christina Werner, a Harvard anthropologist and one of the lead investigators, said the imported fruit may have been dried, 
like modern-day banana chips. Okay? And that way it would have survived a trip from Southeast Asia <laughs> or India and other possible places being the source of those bananas. Very interesting. So a, a great potpourri of information from our old stomping grounds. Okay? Because we are the descendants of those Israelites. And so I'm not going to read the next section uh, because it goes back to 2020. I'll just read the headlines here. Well, some of these might be very interesting. Uh, Assyrian God carvings. Church built on a solid rock. Fort allied with King David in the Golan Heights. Dated to around 1000 BC. Holy smoke residue. A new test on organic remains on the burnt surface of an 8th century BC altar revealed a residue of marijuana. How about that? And uh, the word marijuana is in the Bible. They just mistranslated it. And, oops, I went past number six. That's very interesting. So the the suggestion that uh, Moses uh, at least used marijuana as incense is quite likely. They found it here <laughs> in the 8th century B.C. A temple to rival Jerusalem. Tel Aviv University archaeologists calculate that a temple discovered during reconstruction of Israel's Highway 1 near Jerusalem was built around 900 B.C. It's the Matzah Temple, <laughs> the Temple of Matzah Balls. Five, smiting gods of Canaan. Israeli archaeologist Yosef Garfinkel uncovered the ruins of a Canaanite temple from the 12th century B.C. Again, given all of this archaeological evidence for everything that happened in the Middle East and the entire Arabian Peninsula, town after town after town, road after road after road, river after river, mountain after mountain, valley after valley, all these place names. How could anybody possibly think that this was all made up? But that's what they argue. That's the uh, atheistic academics and, of course, Jews among their number. Number four, well-preserved palace. Archaeologists working on a road project in the Jezreel Valley outside the modern city of Afula discovered a royal complex that served Israelite kings such as Amri and Ahab. Wow, nice. Three, church in a house at Laodicea. Interesting, because we're living in the age of Laodicea. Was that lukewarm? Did they serve lukewarm <laughs> food in Laodicea? Turkish archaeologist Salan Simsek discovered sacred items used in Christian worship while excavating a house in Laodicea. Uh, the peristyle house built around a central garden or courtyard was located next to a theater and was likely owned by wealthy people. The Apostle Paul sent an epistle to the church at Laodicea, which is mentioned in Colossians, but appears to have been lost. Now, well, they found it. Oh, the epistle? A lost epistle? Anyway, yeah. The church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church is what we're living with now, folks. Replica is real. Fragments are fakes, okay? Uh, 
Oh, remains of Manasseh's reign. The discovery of the reigns of a palace possibly belonging to King Manasseh, the ruler in Second Kings 21, who did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger, and led the people to do more evil than the nations had done that the Lord destroyed. Okay? Folks, thanks for listening. There's so much of a wealth of information in archaeology that the uh, mainstream Judeos have no interest in whatsoever. Thanks for listening. Praise Yah. Pass the ammunition. Bye-bye, everybody.